Uh, throughout the month of June, uh, all four Sundays, we celebrated marriage here at Kavanaugh Church. I preached a series entitled, You, Me, We, uh, The Great Love Stories of the Bible. And we looked at four different couples uh, who taught us many valuable lessons on marriage. Well, that series is over, and I really expected to go somewhere else today. But since it is the 4th of July weekend, I thought that uh, maybe a good topic for today would be the State of the Union Address. Little play on words there. And uh, so that's what we're going to talk about today. It got, let me tell you, first service, it got really quiet in here during my sermon. And uh, I know it's a, it's, what I'm going to tell you is pretty heavy. And, uh, you know, I mean, uh, it was just, man, you could, you could have heard a pin drop. Uh, I'm going to try to lighten it up a little bit for this service, but let me, this is really important stuff we're talking about, all right? This is not my opinion, all right? This is the Word of God, all right? And we need to hear and understand what God says about marriage and how He values the family, all right? James Madison was a founding father and a signer of the United States Constitution. He also happened to be the fourth president of these great United States. This is what he said years ago. We have staked the whole future of American civilization not on the power of government, far from it. We've staked the future of all our political institutions upon our capacity to sustain ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God. Boy, we've come a long ways, baby. And maybe the wrong direction, too. Well, open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. It really is interesting to me that our founding fathers saw the Ten Commandments as the foundation of the laws of our nation. Our founding fathers understood that the only way that this American experiment could work is that the people of the land have at least a basic commitment to the law of God as revealed in the Ten Commandments. All right? Now, I'm not going to preach on all ten of the Ten Commandments this morning. I'm just going to hit one of them, which is number seven. It's found in, in Exodus chapter 20. Verse 14, here is the seventh commandment of the Ten Commandments. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. Generally speaking, this short command reflects the value God places on sexual purity for people in every situation of life and in every generation. To an unmarried person... This command is a prohibition against sexual relations of any kind with anyone before you get married. To a married person, it is a prohibition against sexual relationships of any kind with anyone other than your spouse, your husband or your wife. For everyone, married or unmarried, this is a call to sexual purity. By abstaining from all forms of sexual immorality, including pornography, premarital sex, homosexual relations, and every other form of sexual immorality. 
All of that is found in this very short statement that came from God, which is a commandment. You shall not commit adultery. You see, one of God's great values is marriage faithfulness. And on this 4th of July weekend, I think it is critical that America again remembers and hears what God thinks about marriage. So let me just share three quick points with you. First of all, let's talk about the creation of marriage. I hope you understand that God, not man, created the marriage relationship. Okay? This was God's idea. The marriage relationship between a man and a woman is part of the foundation of God's great creation. Remember what we were told in the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible, Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then skip to chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. Down in verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Then in verse 22, Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to him. He brought the woman to the man. So God created marriage for a purpose. And the purpose of that marriage is intimacy between the man and the woman. Verse 24 of chapter 2 of Genesis. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and shall be united unto his wife. And the two of them shall become one flesh. And the seal of this one flesh relationship is the gift that God has given to married couples of sexual intimacy. This intimacy is the physical expression of the spiritual and emotional intimacy that must exist for a marriage to be strong. It's what makes a husband and wife the one flesh. That's the way God made it. That's the way God designed it. There's nothing sinful or perverted or wrong with that because God made it. God blessed it and he gave it to mankind as a gift. God designed it this way, number one, for the enjoyment of the married couple. God gave sexual intimacy, number two, for the strengthening of the marriage. But he also gave it for the purpose of procreation so that that husband and wife could have some kids and one day grandkids. <laughs> so, when God commands, you shall not commit adultery, this is what he is saying. I created the marriage relationship and the physical intimacy that goes on in that relationship. That physical intimacy is not, and I repeat, God says, it is not to be shared with anyone else. It's a special gift between one man and one woman who have united in this sacred commitment that we call marriage. And when God designed the marriage relationship, 
I remind you, he intended it to be one man, one woman, so long as one or the other lives. Jesus quoted this scripture I read earlier in Genesis, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. But then Jesus in Matthew chapter 19 added something to that. He said, So they are no longer two, but they are one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. That is, let no man separate what God has joined together. And all of this comes from the fact that God created the marriage relationship. This is God's idea. Are you with me? All right, I'm going to take this jacket off because it, it's about to get hot in here. All right? And I'm about to start sweating. Hey, do you like my tie? I've got a tie on for you guys. I usually don't wear a tie in the second service, but, you know, it is the 4th of July. And I want, my girls went shopping for me yesterday. I'm styling and profiling, so I'm wearing the cool tie, too. So anyway, anyway, whatever. Yeah, I love my country, that's for sure. God created marriage, the creation of marriage. But here's the second thing I want you to notice. The destruction of marriage. The destruction of marriage. One of God's great values is marriage faithfulness, right? That's what God values, faithfulness in marriage. God values the family, the one man, one woman union for life. And any, I repeat that, any sexual sin outside of that relationship destroys what God values. That's why the Lord says, don't commit adultery. All deviations from that fundamental norm. Anything that deviates what God has blessed and said is appropriate, whether it be polygamy or bigamy or homosexuality, contribute to the breakdown of the ethical fabric of a culture or society. So when you destroy marriage as God has established it to be, you begin to destroy your culture and the society in which you live in. Does anybody remember 1979? Anybody here in 1979? <laughs> there we go. That was a good year. It was a year I graduated from, uh, from high school uh, back in Lubbock, Texas. Anyway, in 1979, a book was written, Our Dance Has Turned to Death. The writer was a Christian sociologist, Carl Wilson. You might think, well, that was a long time ago. Who cares what... A sociologist wrote in 1979, well, what he, what he did in that book was outline the dangers facing traditional marriage and the family in America's increasingly sexualized culture. Wilson could clearly see what was going to happen to the American family if our family and our societies continued to be sex-saturated with the sexual revolution that started in the 60s. He's saying, here's where we are in 1979, and here's where we're headed if we continue down this same path. Wilson noted that history reveals that other nations decline and eventually will die when sexual immorality becomes rampant and the traditional family is discarded in favor of premarital sex, group sex, homosexuality, infidelity, and any kind of unrestrained sexual debauchery. 
he pointed to the writings of a British anthropologist, J.D. Unwin. He wrote a book entitled Sex and Culture. He wrote that book in 1934. <laughs> Nobody was talking about this in 1934. Mm. But he chronicled the historical decline of numerous cultures. Listen closely, church. Unwin studied 86 different cultures throughout history, and he discovered this surprising fact. No nation, no culture, no society that rejected monogamy in marriage. One man, one woman, as God established it, lasted longer than a generation after it embraced this kind of sexual hedonism. What a warning to us. Carl Wilson, back in his book, notes that decadent cultures display seven typical characteristics. He said, if a nation starts meddling in these sexual sins and starts heading downward, here is the spiral that they will go on. And in every culture that has done this, these seven characteristics are prevalent. Number one, men reject spiritual and moral development as the leaders of the families. Guys, that's where it starts. When men refuse to be what God has called us to be, the spiritual leaders of the home. Number two, men begin to neglect their families in search of material gain. Oh boy, that's getting personal, isn't it? Number three, men begin to engage in adulterous relationships and homosexual sex. Number four, women begin to devalue the role of motherhood and homemaker. Number five, husbands and wives begin to compete with each other and families begin to disintegrate. Number six, selfish individualism fragments society into warring factions. Number seven, men and women lose faith in God and reject all authority over their lives. I read that list and I said, oh my. Soon moral anarchy reigns. Church, listen to me. When the family collapses, the society soon follows. All seven of these characteristics are happening right now, right here in the United States of America. But listen to me, I'm not here to ride a hobby horse. I'm here to tell you the truth. And specifically this morning, I am preaching on this one commandment about marriage, the fact that, that God says, you shall not commit adultery. Did you know every year in the United States, there are about 2.4 million marriages that occur? Anywhere from 2.1 to 2.4, that's the trend. It's been that way for the last several years. About 2.4 million marriages occur every year in the United States. At that same time period, in any given year, there are approximately 1.2 million divorces. That's where the 50% thing came in. But really, you can't compare it that way because not all those 2.4 million couples that got married in a, in a given year are going to divorce that first year, all right? 
but in the history of, of those who are living. Maybe it's a couple that's been married 10, 20, 30, 40 years, whatever the case. Every year, there are about 1.2 million divorces in the country. I learned a long time ago there are numerous reasons for a couple to divorce. I was surprised one day to find out that the number one reason for divorce is over financial problems, financial distress, money. That's the number one issue. But close up at the top, always, in every generation, every culture, one of the top reasons couples get divorced is because of infidelity. It's because of adultery. In fact, let me just get real personal with you. If you hear of a friend of yours or a couple or someone you know who is getting a divorce, you hear the news, they're getting a divorce, probably, okay, and I'm assuming something here, but probably most of you will think to yourself, well, I wonder which one of them were unfaithful. Don't we think that way? Let's be honest. Don't we think that way? We do. We really do because adultery plays such a big role in divorces today. I, I've wondered this past week writing this sermon, how many divorces could have been avoided if adultery didn't happen in a marriage? Now, I've been talking kind of in abstract ways over here, and I think most of you are with me. I haven't made too many people mad yet, have I? Yeah, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to... Get it real personal right now. I'm getting real close. I'm, I'm gonna I'm about to tick some of you off, all right? But I, I want to remind you what the Lord says in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. This is what the Lord God says. I hate divorce. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. That's what God says. The Lord says, I hate divorce. Now, before you turn me off totally, notice say, I hate divorcees. He did not say that. No, the Lord hates divorce. The Lord hates what divorce does to men and women. Are you with me? The Lord hates the results of divorce in men and women's lives. The Lord hates what divorce does to children. The Lord hates what divorce does to extended families and to communities. Now, I know we have many individuals and couples who are such a vital part of the life of Kavanaugh Church and outstanding leaders who have been through the heartache of a divorce. Some will tell you, some in this church will tell you that that divorce was their fault, but that they have received God's forgiveness and cleansing from what they know to be a sin that they have repented of. Some will tell you, however, that the divorce was not their fault. And that their marriage was, was destroyed by the sin of their spouse. But I can promise you this. If you talk to people who have come from either side of the divorce, either the offended or the offender, they will tell you that divorce has devastating effects. And though many have remarried and rebuilt their lives on a solid biblical foundation... They will tell you to this day that they will forever struggle with the pain that divorce brought their lives and into their family and their children and the circles beyond that. But you know what, church? Jesus always goes to the heart of the matter, doesn't he? 
So we've kind of been talking in these abstract terms. I just got pretty personal with you and close. Now I'm going to get real personal. There are self-righteous people, some right here in this building, who pride themselves in the fact that they've never divorced. And they even look down their spiritual nose at those who have. But you know what, guys? <laughs> there is something just as hideous perhaps hiding in their hearts. What am I talking about? Matthew chapter 5. Jesus got to the heart of the matter. He said, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. I mean, that's what I'm preaching on today, right? Commandment number 7, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus said, you've heard that, haven't you? Church, you've heard that, haven't you? But Jesus said, I tell you that anyone who looks on a woman to lust after her, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Oh boy. Jesus said that the seedbed for adultery starts in the heart. That there is a high probability that there are present today in this room Married men and married women who are dangerously close to a full-blown adulterous affair with someone that you have grown attached to. Perhaps you never intended that it come to that, but it's there. And you know in your heart this morning that you are literally flirting with someone or something that could ruin your life and destroy your family. So the seventh commandment addresses the creation of marriage. It, it also addresses the destruction of marriage. That's pretty heavy, but that's where it's at. Understand, guys, listen to me. God values marriage. We should value marriage as well. Understand God created it. Understand our culture is trying to destroy it, and they are. So you know what? My third point is this. We need to protect marriage. That there must be the protection of what God has established and what God values. Marriage is so important in the eyes of God, it must be protected. And you know who its guardians are? The church. We are. We must value and protect marriage. Why? Well, let me give you four reasons. Number one, we need to do it for the sake of the marriage. You need to protect your marriage for the sake of your marriage. Okay? Here's what you need to do, guys. You need to affair-proof your marriage. Faithfulness is the basis of trust, which is the basis of a long-lasting marriage. There must be trust between a husband and wife. You've got to be faithful to one. And you need to affair-proof your marriage. You need to take the option of divorce out of the equation in your home. So what needs to happen is you and your spouse sit down and you talk about how can we affair-proof our marriage? What are the steps we can take to make sure adultery does not occur in our home? And how can we remain faithful to each other and love each other until we die? You've already made that commitment before God and man. Now just figure out how you're going to do it. The protection of marriage, not only for the sake of the marriage, but number two, for the sake of the children. Let me tell you, children are hurt when the father-mother structure breaks down. Bottom line, the kids are hurt. 
We need to protect marriage for the sake of our kids and the sake of their kids. In in a society that is so fragmented and, and so mobile, a family needs something they can know. Whitney and I were talking yesterday of the, of the number of times we've moved. And I was reflecting back on the different houses that I lived in while I was growing up. And I guess there's probably, I don't know, maybe four houses I lived in when I was living with my mom and dad. We moved from uh, our first house in Midland to another house. And then we moved to Abilene. And then we moved to Lubbock. Since that time, I've moved around quite a bit. I've been here in Fort Smith for 18 years which is, for a preacher, that's pretty remarkable, let me tell you. So, what, but what it's done as a benefit for my family is my kids have got to grow up in a house. This is all they know right here. Fort Smith, Cavanaugh Church, 905 Cary Lane. Whitney told me since she's left her, her home here, you've moved, what, every year? Every year into a new place. And they just bought a house in Little Rock, so they're about to move in a few weeks, you know? Make this the last one for a while, all right? There you go. Unless you're coming back home, right, guys? Yeah. Yeah. But you know what? We do live in a, a mobile society. And even though you may have to move your family from one house to another, from one city to another, they need some kind of stability. They have to have a family, right? Because if they don't, this world falls apart. We need to protect marriage, number three, for the sake of the gospel. You see, church, the Bible teaches us that uh, the marital relationship is to be an ongoing demonstration of the sacrificial love that Jesus Christ showed his church. In fact, Jesus refers to this often in the gospels. The church is his bride. We are the bride of Christ. And he correlates that with the husband-wife relationship. I am to love my wife as Christ loved the church. He gave himself for the church. I should love Angie the same way. She should trust me as spiritual leader and give that spiritual reverence to me just as we as a church give that reverence to Christ. That's how a marriage works. And so for the sake of the gospel, we need to protect our marriage as a witness to the truth of God. Then finally, number four, we need to protect the marriage for the sake of our society. A healthy society needs healthy families. And families are held together by the lifelong commitment of a man and a woman. We protect our marriages as we protect our families. And when we protect our marriage and our families, we are protecting the world that we live in and the culture that we have. I I don't have to tell you, we're in in a mess. We are in a mess. The sexual revolution of the 1960s has has spiraled downward until we are in the shape that we're in. And let me, I told you at the first, I'm I'm not on any hobby horse. I haven't even mentioned the the ruling from the Supreme Court. I hadn't planned on talking about that. I'm not going to talk about that because here's the problem. Here's the deal. All sexual sin is wrong. I don't care what you call it. I don't care what it is. Premarital sex, infidelity, homosexual activity, group sex, bestiality. Yeah, it's happening right here in Arkansas. Did you know that? It's all a sin. The only thing that God sanctioned is right is a one relationship between a man and a woman for life. And anything that deviates from that is a sin. 
And church, that's where we are as a country. And if the family is going to be protected, it has got to be protected by good Christian people like you and by a church that's going to stand for what is right. Can I just tell you from my own personal perspective what I'm more concerned about? I am more concerned about husbands and wives' relationships disintegrating and adultery occurring in marriages than I am about any other kind of sexual sin that is in our culture today because that is at the root of our problem. You need to protect your marriage. You need to protect your family. God says do not commit adultery. It's the bottom line. That's my sermon. Whether you like it or not, there it is. But I'm not done yet. Maybe you're here today and you've blown it. Maybe you've been guilty of adultery. So was a woman in the New Testament who was brought before Jesus and thrown at the feet of our Savior. She had been caught in adultery in the very act of sexual immorality. John chapter 8 verse 3, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And then the Pharisees reminded Jesus of what the law said about adultery. Do you remember how Jesus treated this woman who had been caught, confronted, and already condemned by others? Pretty good stuff, isn't it, Jason? First of all, he confronted her accusers. He said, all of you who are completely free and innocent of sin, what he was referring to as sexual immorality, you throw the first stone. Those of you who have no sin, you go ahead and pick up the stones and you cast the first stone. The Bible says they all walked away. They, they may have been dumb heads, but they were smart enough to walk away. And then Jesus said this to that woman. Where are those who condemn you? She looked around and said, Lord, there are none. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Two powerful statements that Jesus gave. Neither do I condemn you. There is forgiveness in Jesus. Amen. Can we have an amen about that? There is forgiveness in Jesus. Don't rationalize your sin, your adultery, your sexual deviation. Don't justify it. Don't do anything else with it. Just admit that you're guilty of it. Put your trust in the forgiving power of Jesus on the cross. Receive God's pardon. Receive His forgiveness. You talk about freedom. Jesus can set you free. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Or as some translations put it, Go now and leave your life of sin. Is it pornography? Confess it, be forgiven, and leave that life of sin. Is it adultery? Confess it. 
Leave it behind. Do away with it. Go and sin no more. Is it homosexuality? Confess it. Go and sin no more. Church, that's our hope. It's in the forgiveness of Jesus. But I'm not quite done with you. None of this is in my notes. I just tacked it on to my sermon, into my sermon at first service. And if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for you. I want to leave you with 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is what Paul said. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulteresses, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, church, this is, this is not the gospel according to will. This is not my opinion. This is God's word. He is saying these people who live this lifestyle and practice this kind of sin will not be allowed into heaven. If this is your lifestyle, if this is the, the choice you made, and this is the way you're living life, you're not going to make it to heaven. And notice... Four of those ten sins are sexual sins. Can you understand why people hate God so much? Does this help you understand why there are so many anti-God people? People who want to destroy everything that God thinks is sacred. Because God cramps their lifestyle. God says this is truth. This is reality. This is the way it is. You can't justify it. If you live this kind of lifestyle, you're not going to go to heaven. Now, most of us in this room can sit back today and say, Preach it. Amen, Pastor. Woo! I believe that. Hallelujah. But you got to read verse 11. And such were some of you. Lord, have mercy. And such were most of us. No. And such were all of us. And such were all of us. Maybe our specific sins are not listed in these ten, but such were all of us. <laughs> but you were washed. Well, hallelujah. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You were in that ship headed for hell. But hallelujah, God has washed you. He's sanctified you. He's justified you. And now you're saved. That's the hope we give America. That's the hope I give my family and my friends. You know what? That's the hope I give you today. Really, you know what we need today on this, this 5th of July? We need to have a washing day. 
a good old-fashioned washing day. I was thinking last night, back, back when I was growing up as a kid, we took a bath once a week. <laughs> Lord, Lord have mercy. Man, I can't, didn't we? Just once a week we'd have a bath? Maybe more than that. I'll, I can just remember Saturday night baths. And, and once a week, seemed like just once a week, my mama did the washing. She washed all the sheets, all the towels, all the clothes. Of course, you know, back then we'd wear, we'd wear the same pair of jeans two or three days in a row. No, not really. But anyway, I can just, re- <laughs> I'm trying to make this sound really good. I can remember a washing day at home. Mama would wash everything, and then she'd hang it out on the line in the backyard to dry. Sheets and towels, Levi blue jeans, underwear, that'd all be hanging out there. Washing day. Let's have a washing day. Where God washes our sins away. Where through the blood of Jesus Christ, we are sanctified and justified and made right in the eyes of God. Let's have that today. You need that in your life. Maybe your family needs it. You know what? For sure, it's what our country needs. So let's preach this message to our country. That Jesus loves. He does. And that he forgives. Heavenly Father, I pray right now that you would speak.